Well, hey, everybody. My name is Norton Herbst. I'm one of the pastors at New Denver Church, and this is part 3B of You Lost Me at Leviticus. We are walking through the ancient book of Leviticus, and in the first seven chapters of this book, uh, here's what's going on. Here's what we've been talking about. If you've been with us, um, there are five sacrifices that are described in ancient Israel. They're the five main offerings that the Israelites could bring to God at the tent of meeting. They're at Mount Sinai thinking and talking and learning about this. And these five sacrifices are described as gifts to God. Now, the first three gifts are voluntary gifts, meaning you bring them to express your joy or your gratitude or your desire to draw close to God. And then the last two offerings are related to sin, And they're actually related to unintentional sin, which we looked at in the last message. It means something you did wrong that you later came to regret or you realized later it was wrong and you want to be cleaned or cleansed of the stain of that sin. You want to be forgiven. And so you come to God with one of these sacrifices. Uh, The first was called the purification offering and the second was called the reparation offering. That was for specific instances where you owed somebody something. So you have to pay them back or make amends um, if you took something from them. You can't just ask for forgiveness and move on. You actually have to make it right. So we explored these last two offerings in depth in the last message. And then Leviticus chapters 6 and 7 give some additional instructions. Now, those additional instructions, instructions can be a little bit confusing at first because the first set of instructions about the five offerings, Leviticus 1 through 5, those are given to the people. So they're given from the perspective of, here's what you're to do if you want to bring one of these gifts. But then in the second part of chapter 6 and and chapter 7, there's a second set of instructions, and they're for the priests specifically. Hey, if someone brings one of these offerings, you heard all of their instructions, but here's a few other things you need to be aware of and that you are going to have to do as a priest. So that's why there's um, some additional instructions. Now, today, uh, in this supplemental podcast, we've been doing these sort of as extra. Uh, I want to address two questions that are related to this whole sacrificial, sacrificial system in general. Uh, The first is a smaller question, um, and we'll talk about that quickly. And then the second is one that I brought up in the last message, and that's where we'll spend most of our time. So here's the first question. You've probably noticed that every time that an ancient Israelite was supposed to bring an animal as an offering, it says to bring one without defect or without blemish. The Hebrew word there can mean uh, just blameless. It can mean perfect or, or, or have that connotation, uh, complete, totally healthy, uh, an animal that has no fault whatsoever, meaning this bull or this goat or this sheep that you bring, it does not. It should not have any diseases. It should not have any physical handicaps. It should not have any physical marks or defects or blemishes or any of those things. It, it, it sort of, at least by appearance sake, needs to look perfect And the question is, why? Why is that? Is God demanding perfection? Are are these instructions inherently suggesting that if the animal does have a disease, if the animal has a lame leg, or if the animal is blind, or if it has some sort of physical blemish, that this kind of animal is not good enough for God? Is not valuable enough for God? And you could see how we might interpret it that way, and you can see that if we interpret it that way, our minds might take this in all sorts of directions and draw all sorts of implications, but that is not the intention. This is not about inherent worth or value in God's eyes, as if animals with blemishes are less valuable in God's eyes than animals without any blemishes. It's about the worth or the value of the gift that people are bringing in their eyes. See, humanly speaking, uh, for an Israelite, there are animals that are more valuable than others, right? We mentioned this last time, female animals are more valuable than males. 
and God seems to recognize this because he knows if they only brought females as offerings, then their herds or their flocks would diminish quickly. They wouldn't be able to keep up with reproduction. You need females to reproduce and to maintain the size of your flocks and your herds. And so God says, I get that. And so for most sacrifices, the instructions are to bring a male. God does not require a female. But suppose you have a flock of sheep and uh, most of them are healthy, but there's a couple of sick sheep. And what if one of those sheep can't produce any wool because it has some kind of skin disease? What if you have a goat that can't produce any milk because it's sick? What if it's time to give an offering to God? And don't forget, offerings to God or sacrifices are gifts. And what if you save your best ones for yourself? And then the one animal that isn't valuable to you anymore, the one animal that's actually become a burden that you're just trying to keep alive because it has some disease and it's not helping you in any way anymore, it's not going to provide any meat, it's not going to provide any milk, it's not going to provide any wool, the one animal that you might be putting down next week anyways, what if that's the one that you bring to God? And now you can see uh, this would be like giving somebody a gift, right? It would be like giving someone a, a present for their birthday and they open the present and inside the box is an old pair of jeans that used to be yours and they don't fit anymore and they're covered in paint because you, you had turned them into your work jeans and there's a huge rip in the seat and they look at it and it's like, this is not a gift, right? You're just, you're, you're just getting rid of something that had no value to you anyways, And so this is what's going on here. In fact, later in Israel's history, that exact situation, the old pair of jeans with the rip, that exact situation happens. Malachi chapter 1, we're not going to read it, but you can go take a look at it yourself offline. Uh, There are priests that are offering animals that have been stolen. They weren't even theirs. They were stolen. They're offering animals as sacrifices that are blind, animals that are lame, animals that are diseased. They're giving God these animals that didn't cost them anything and didn't have any more value to them anymore. And God says back to them in Malachi chapter 1 and chapter 2, God says, do you really think this is a gift to me? <laughs> like, do, do you really think this pleases me? You are saving the best for yourself, and you're giving me something that doesn't mean anything to you anymore. And that's not just bad form. That is offensive. And so that's what's going on with all of these instructions in Leviticus about animals without blemish. God is simply saying, if you're going to bring me gifts, bring me your best, right? I mean, if you're If you're giving me a gift to show your gratitude for me, show your gratitude with the kind of gift you give me. Give me something that is valuable to you. Your best bull, your best ram, your best sheep. Bring me one without blemish. Now, this leads to the big question that I want to think about today. Um, If the Israelites are doing this every day, right? Maybe not one person is doing it every day. Maybe the family is doing it once or twice a week. But, but Israelites are bringing animals to be slaughtered on this altar at the tent of meeting every single day. And there's blood and there's slaughtering and there's guts. And, and if you begin to picture this, I don't know if you've tried to, to picture this in your mind, but if you begin to picture this, this is why the book of Leviticus starts to get so difficult Because it starts with all of this discussion of slaughtering of animals and all of these organs and blood and all that stuff. And it just feels so cruel and barbaric. And the question that we have to ask is, why does God use such a barbaric system that involves the systematic slaughter of countless animals? Have you you been wrestling with that for the past few weeks? Have Have you been thinking about that? And it's important to ask the question in this way, why does God use this kind of system? Because God doesn't necessarily create the system. (laughs) And it's not like 
uh, anyone at this point in human history when Leviticus is written had never offered an animal sacrifice. And God says to the Israelites, hey, I've got a crazy idea. I know it's going to sound weird and cruel, but I want you to start slaughtering animals, right? (laughs) That's not what happens here. This is not a new idea. There are descriptions in the Bible in Genesis and Exodus, of people offering sacrifices before Leviticus. There are countless descriptions of people in all kinds of different and other cultures in the ancient world doing this. I mean, we have descriptions and artwork, and I looked at this this past week, of artwork of of sacrifices that were done by the Mesopotamians, by the Egyptians, by the Babylonians, by the Hittites, by the Emrites, by the Canaanites, by the Assyrians. I can go on and on. This was common in the ancient world to offer animals as sacrifices. Now, the Israelites had some unique ways of doing this and some unique reasons for doing this. So there are some key distinctions And you're going to see this this kind of dynamic over and over in the book of Leviticus. There's going to be things that we read that to us sound weird and strange. And what I'm going to tell you is, actually, this was not weird or strange at all. If you study this historically, there were lots of people and lots of cultures that did this thing or believed this thing in the ancient world. So in some ways... Israel is just a product of or a part of their larger culture in human history at that time. At the same time, the way Israel views things and does things sometimes forges a very new and distinctive way. Sometimes their laws or their rituals or their practices have a distinctive flavor or have some distinctive elements that make them different and unique from all the other cultures. And the sacrificial system is a great example of this. Other nations offered sacrifices, right? This was common during this time. And Israel fits within that cultural milieu where this is just normal. But there were some key differences too. People from other cultures offered sacrifices for three reasons. They offered sacrifices to feed the gods. People believed that gods were literally hungry and humans were responsible for feeding them. And so the sacrifices were giving this food to God. And you even see some of that language make its way into Leviticus. There's one phrase that appears sometimes. This is a food offering to God. But Leviticus doesn't press that imagery very far. And there's other texts in the Hebrew scriptures like Psalm 50 that make it clear that the Israelites knew we're not actually feeding Yahweh. That's not the purpose of the other people might be feeding their gods, but we're not actually feeding Yahweh. That's not the purpose of why we're offering these sacrifices. The second reason that sacrifices were offered in other cultures was to appease the gods. There was a belief that the gods were always mad or displeased or angry at you, and you needed to appease them. And they might not be angry because of sin. Um, Sin is, is somewhat of a distinctive Hebrew concept Um, It's very complex, but we don't find the way that the Hebrew people thought of sin. We don't find that similar in other cultures. Other cultures believed gods, the gods or God was just angry because gods were fickle. and, And that's just what they were like. And humans were so inferior to the gods. The gods were so much more above humans that they just always saw humans as petty and, 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 and nothing really worthy. And so sacrifices were offered to try to appease the gods. But then there's a third reason the sacrifices are offered in other cultures. And I love how Rob Bell puts this. He says, people offered sacrifices oftentimes to tilt the gods in their favor, right? It's like you never knew where you stood with the gods. And if you wanted the gods to bless you, And if you believe that the gods were the reason behind your crops going or the reason behind whether it rained or not, then you better give the gods something in order to gain their favor, to tilt them in your favor, to make it rain and to make your crops grow. And so in other cultures, sacrifice was about feeding God, it was about appeasing God, or it was about getting God on your side. I mean, the picture here is God is not on your side. (laughs) 
He's not on your side and you need to offer a sacrifice to get him on your side. Literally, the picture is that there is a canyon between you and God and he is on the other side and a sacrifice has to be made in order to get him on your side. And isn't it interesting that as Christians, 3,000 years later, we have developed ways of talking about the gospel that use this exact imagery. God's not on your side. He's angry at you because of your sin. He's on the other side of a canyon and a sacrifice needs to be made in order to get him on your side. And that image, as understandable as it is, probably has more in common with ancient pagan cultures than it does Leviticus or the Bible. I love what one Hebrew scholar, uh, John Golden Gay, he's written a whole bunch of books um, that discuss different elements of this, but he wrote an article about sacrifices and about the book of Leviticus, and he says this, Our situation is not one in which God and ourselves are set over against each other with sin causing a gulf in between us, but it's one in which God is on the same side as us over against all that spoils us. See, God is already on our side. And he wants to forgive us, and he wants to cleanse us, and he wants to wash the stain out, and he wants to help us not make a mess in our lives again. And he does all of these things when we confess our sin, and we repent to him, and we come to him. And there's numerous times that he does this without sacrifice in the Old Testament. (laughs) There's numerous times that people confess their sin and repent, and he forgives them, and there's not a sacrifice involved. He does not need the blood to forgive and clean. He does not need the sacrifice. So why is it such a big part of Leviticus? Why is sacrifice this huge ritual that accompanies confession and the asking of forgiveness and the cleansing? Well, partly because ritual is important. I mentioned that in the last message. Physical, tangible rituals have a way of helping us say we're sorry, have a way of helping us show contrition and seek forgiveness in ways that words alone don't. But couldn't God have used something other than sacrificing animals for the people of Israel to do that, to to offer gifts to God or to come to him and ask for forgiveness? Why does he use this brutal and barbaric system where so many animals are slaughtered over and over, and over, and over, and we think about it, and it just seems cruel and barbaric. Can we pause for a second there and ask this question? Who are we to raise this question about slaughtering animals? Seven million sheep are slaughtered in the U.S. every year. 35 million cattle are slaughtered in the United States every year. 123 million pigs are slaughtered in the U.S. every year. 225 million turkeys are slaughtered in the U.S. every year. Eight billion Chickens are slaughtered in the U.S. every year. 47 billion fish and shellfish are slaughtered in the U.S. every year. And when you pause to consider that, when you pause to acknowledge the sheer number of animals that we are currently slaughtering in our society today, just in our nation. I'm not talking about the world. I'm literally talking about just our nation. When you think about that and you think about percentage-wise or per capita-wise, how we slaughter 
a much greater number of animals than were ever slaughtered in ancient Israel. Isn't it odd and strange that we would ever think of their culture as barbaric? And then just consider the way that we slaughter animals compared to the way that they did. Uh, The way that we do it is in mass. There is nothing personal about the way that almost every animal in the U.S. is slaughtered for its meat. It's mostly thoughtless. It's mechanical. In most instances, it's cruel. Uh, Just to take one example, chickens, you might know this, but chickens, for the most part, are bred in factory farms. They're bred and they're fed to have more mass and more weight than their legs and their bodies can handle. And so they begin to develop all sorts of physical problems because their legs can't handle the weight and their organs can't keep up with the amount of hormones and things that are given to them to make them so meaty and so weighty and have so much mass. But it doesn't matter because they're slaughtered when they're 42 days old. They don't have to live a long life. They don't have to have any quality of life. Their bodies don't have to sustain anything past 42 days because they're only bred to produce plump and juicy chicken breasts at the lowest cost possible. 99% of all meat that we eat in all categories in the United States, comes from some kind of factory farm like this. Now think about the contrast with the way an animal would be sacrificed in ancient Israel. In a factory farm, the animal is never cared for during its life. There's no thanks given for the animal's life when it is slaughtered. There is no owner there to place his hands on the head of the animal and to say, this animal was mine. I cared for it. I fed it. I nurtured it. I raised it. And so I bring it to you now, God. There is no recognition that life is sacred. There is no offering of this life to God. There is no sense of holiness. There is no connection made between the life of this creature that God made and my own life. There is no awareness that the blood that is being spilled right now from this animal means something significant. And now you might begin to see, if an ancient Israelite could visit our culture today, I think that he or she would no doubt say, we are the barbaric ones. We are the cruel ones. We are the senseless slaughterers. Now, before you get defensive, let me tell you something. I love meat. Uh, I love burgers. Uh, I had chicken enchiladas four days ago. I had Popeye's chicken three days ago. Uh, I don't remember what I had two days ago. Last night, we had steak tacos. So I I am sharing these ideas and these thoughts with you from a place where I wrestle with this deeply and personally myself. But I think we have to wrestle. Because Leviticus offers a totally different perspective on God, on life, on the world, on so many things. And sometimes it is odd and it's strange because it is so culturally different. And yet sometimes its purpose is to force us to ask tough questions about our own perspective, about the way that we see things and the way we do things now. Sometimes it challenges us in that way by just giving us a totally different cultural and historical lens to see God and to see the world through. And I think this is one of those issues that raises some questions that we have to consider. And so let me just share with you a few thoughts or reflections about the slaughter of animals and eating meat and, and this larger issue of sacrifice and, 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 and how they ate meat and and their culture and how we eat meat. Because remember, most of the animals that they sacrificed in Israel involved eating the meat, right? So, so, So they were eating meat just like we were eating meat. They just did it in a very different way than we do. So I have three reflections. Let me unpack these for you. Three reflections from 
the perspective of Leviticus for us today. Reflection number one, we have removed worship from the everyday details of our lives. And that's why Leviticus seems so odd to us, right? On Sundays, we do worship for an hour, and then everything else is just the rest of life, right? We go home, and we watch football, and we eat, and we do other things, and then we go to work during the week, and we do all the... Like, so, so here's what you have to realize. We are still slaughtering animals, just like they were. We're still spilling blood, just like they were. We're eating meat, just like they were. We've just outsourced it to industry, and we don't connect it to anything sacred. So on Sunday, we might worship at 8.30 or 10, and we sing songs about God, and we do sacred and holy things, and we think about Him, and then at noon, we go eat a hamburger, and we do not connect those two things in any form or fashion. But for the Israelites, the two were integrally connected. When they slaughtered an animal to eat its meat, it wasn't just for food or for meat. I mean, in their system, this was a ritual that was deeply meaningful. You gave part of the animal to God, and then depending on the kind of sacrifice, we looked at that, you did other things that were deeply symbolic of something that is going on that's so much bigger than just providing food for the table, right? I mean, this act that seems so secular and non-spiritual to us, Eating a meal, right? I mean, it's just something you have to do. You eat a meal and the steps that it takes to get the meat for that meal. I mean, for us, the act of getting the meat for the meal is just going to the store to buy a pound of ground beef, right? There is nothing more plain and average and normal and non-spiritual and secular. But we forget or we neglect the fact that there was an animal slaughtered somewhere to provide that ground beef. Pain was inflicted. Blood was spilt. Death was enacted. And for the Israelites, that was not secular or non-spiritual or just a detail of life. That act could help one know and understand deeper spiritual realities, could help one draw closer to God. It was an act that was part of worship. And so the first reflection to us is we've removed worship from the everyday details of our lives, right? Something as simple as getting the meat and cooking it and eating a meal. We've removed worship from that, and that should cause us to rethink some things. Here's reflection number two. We need to take the killing of animals more seriously. We just do, right? I mean, the reason ancient people invested so much meaning in animal sacrifice is because killing an animal and eating its meat, it's a serious thing. It's serious because this animal is one of God's living creatures. Because life is always sacred. Because humans are to be stewards of life. It's serious because every time you see the killing of an animal, you are peering into that portal between life and death, and that carries weight. It's why most of us couldn't be hunters, right? It's why those of you who are hunters, you know this. You know that it is a serious thing to take the life of an animal. It's a serious thing to see an animal dying, a lot of us can't even watch that on a, in a movie, right? Because there's just there's something there. I mean, we have compassion for this animal that might be experiencing pain, but at a deeper level, it's like it puts these matters of life and death in front of us, and that's serious. It's it's a bit like going to a funeral, right? Whenever you go to a funeral, you can't help at a funeral to think about serious things. You can't help but think about what life after death might be like. You can't help but think about how life is short and fleeting. You can't help but think about how it's important to make the most of my life right now. We pause and we think about those questions once every few years when we go to a funeral, right? 
ancient Israelites were reminded of the importance of these questions every single week, sometimes every day when they brought these animals to God. Do you see how important, how how serious this issue of killing animals can be? Think about this for a second. We lament the way that human life is devalued in our world today, right? There's a lot of different issues and a lot of different ways that we see human life being devalued today. Perhaps for you, it's the poor, and you see how so many people in society don't really care about the poor or the homeless, and you see that those are people, and those people have life and value just like we do, right? Or maybe it's people with mental health issues. Maybe it's the issue of racism. I mean, black lives matter, right? I mean, the reason that has become such an important slogan is because for so long, African Americans have been saying black lives have not mattered. And they still don't matter to a lot of white Americans, right? This issue of the value and the sanctity of life is wrapped up in racism and racial justice that we're talking about right now. Uh, Maybe it's the unborn for you. Maybe you lament that there are still almost a million pregnancies in the U.S. every year that are ended early, that are terminated. And you get it. You understand the difficult choices that so many women have to make. Maybe you've had to make one of those difficult choices. And still, we all wish they didn't have to make those choices. We all wish that life was never terminated. Maybe it's care for the elderly. Maybe it's the dying. Whatever it is for you, where you look around and you see that that human life is being devalued in some significant way, shouldn't we stop and ask, would this surprise us? Because think about the way we deal with animal life. Think about the vast mechanical industry that we have set up whose only purpose is to breed life quickly and efficiently and then to kill and package quietly and secretly so that we can all go to the store and buy meat without even thinking about how we got this meat. Now, I'm not equating animals and humans, right? I'm just pointing out that the book of Leviticus is putting this issue front and center and saying that the killing of animals is a serious issue and it should always pause us to think and consider the sanctity of life and the seriousness with which this act should be undertaken and it will always be a reflection on how we view all of life. So reflection number two, we we need to take the killing of animals more seriously. Uh, Side note, there's a lot of documentaries that address this or raise questions about factory farming. You've probably seen some of those. There's a great book by author Jonathan Safran Foer called Eating Animals. You you might look at some of those resources, but let's move on. Reflection number three. And I'm not going to tell you this reflection yet. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to lead you into it. I want to tell you my journey at arriving at this reflection because it is so tied to Leviticus, but it's tied to some other things that are all being pulled together now that we have arrived at Leviticus. So I've been studying this book of Leviticus um, more intensely for about two or three years now. Um, I've also been studying the book of Genesis a lot for a number of years, probably for the last five or 10 years. It's just been a passion I've been fascinated by the first few stories and chapters in Genesis of of questions about creation and all of those things. In fact, if you've been at New Denver for a long time, um, I've preached two different sermon series on the first three chapters of Genesis at at New Denver. Um, It's been a while, so if you're new, you probably didn't know that. You could go listen to those if you want. But but I've just been fascinated by the, the ancient Hebrew worldview, what they believed about God, what they believed about creation, and what we can learn from them. And as it relates to this question about animals, about sacrifice, about meat, about how humans treat animals, about human, how humans kill animals, here are a few things I've learned. Here, here's how the earliest books of the Bible describe this. 
Genesis chapter 1, uh, we all know the story. God creates all the animals. Humans are one of those animals, right? But humans are unique. <laughs> humans are different. They're made in the image and the likeness of God, and they are given the responsibility of being God's stewards over creation. So God says to, gen- to, to humans in Genesis Chapter 1, verse 28, to these first humans that he created, God says this, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And the word rule there doesn't mean like rule with an iron fist, right? It means humans, I'm leaving you in charge to rule for me. I am the ruler and the king, but I am now handing you that responsibility. I'm leaving you in charge to rule over creation for me, which means to care for all of these animals, to bring flourishing to them and to all of my creation. And in fact, in chapter 2 of Genesis, one of the first things that God tells Adam to do is to name all of the animals. That's part of ruling, right? But clearly, ruling is like being a parent because you name your kids, right? You name your pets. And so God is saying, you're going to be stewards over these animals. You're going to care for them. You're going to help them flourish just like you would your children. So I want you to name all of them so you know them and can care for them and can help them flourish. So God says, rule over the animals. Genesis 1, 28. Next verse, verse 29. Then God said... I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So, Here's what God is saying. There's a key distinction between those things that I've created that have the breath of life in them, that I've put my breath of life in, and that's humans and that's animals, right? There's a key distinction between those things and between all the other stuff, the plants, the vegetation. And so what I'm doing is I am giving you the plants, I'm giving you the the seeds and the trees and the vegetation, all this wonderful fruit that it creates, that's what I'm giving you to eat. That's what you as humans will eat, and that's what all the animals will eat as well. And God makes this more, even more explicit in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, right? All these plants, all these trees, all this food is for you to eat. You can eat from any tree you want, except one. I've got one special rule about that one. I'll tell you about that in a second. But the bigger point is, you can eat from all of these trees. And so do you know what we as humans were like in the beginning? We were vegetarians. We ate apples and oranges and mangoes and cherries. We ate french fries and broccoli and sautéed green beans. We ate sourdough bread with cane sugar and cinnamon sprinkled on top. We had sweet potato pie and pumpkin pie in the fall. We were vegetarians because God gave us all of this wonderful plants and its fruit to be our food. And the animals, they were like our children. We took care of them. We helped them flourish. Now, one question, were animals herbivores too? Were they vegetarians? I don't know. Scholars have thought about this, debated this. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard for me, honestly, to imagine a world where a wolf would just lay down next to a lamb and not want to have lamb for dinner, right? It seems like that's inherent to who a wolf is. I just can't imagine that. But the prophet Isaiah did. He saw a day in the future where that would be a reality. 
where creation would be at such peace and harmony with itself that wolves and lambs and goats and leopards and calves and lions would all lay down together and play together and that the lion would eat straw, the lion would not eat other animals. And Isaiah saw this in a future where God's rule would be fully realized on the earth. And maybe God saw that because that was always his intention. Or maybe Isaiah saw that because that was always God's intention. It was always his intention for animals and humans to be living together in peace and in harmony under God's rule. Right? Now, all you non-vegetarians like me, you're, you're thinking right now, uh, yeah, that sounds nice, but that's a fairy tale, right? That's not reality. Animals do eat each other, and we eat animals, right? And Genesis actually says, you're right. You're right. That happened. <laughs> when humans sinned, and don't think of the sin as just one unfortunate mistake one day that Adam and Eve made, right? What they did was representative of humanity saying to God, We want to rule in our own way, God. We want to rule over creation in our own way, and we don't need your wisdom, and we don't need your rules, and we don't need your instructions, and we know what's best for us. We don't think you know what's best for us. That's the heart of sin. That's always the heart of sin. And that's the story that is told in Genesis 3. And there is no hint of violence or death until that story in Genesis 3 is told. And then we get to Genesis 4. And we see immediately that Abel, a man named Abel, is slaughtering animals. And then we see that his brother Cain slaughters Abel. And then we see that Cain is afraid for his life because he thinks that people are going to kill him out of revenge. And then we read about a guy named Lamech. And this is still Genesis chapter 4, by the way. And Lamech is wounded by someone else in a fight. And then he goes back and he kills the guy for revenge. And where Cain was actually remorseful and afraid for what he had done, Lamech goes around boasting about his violence and his killing. And do you see how quickly things go downhill? In fact, they get so bad by Genesis chapter 6. People are so cruel to each other. They're cruel to creation and they're cruel to God. They don't care about him. That God decides to start over. He finds one family that will listen to him. That will trust him. That is still interested in being stewards over creation. And because God loves humanity and he loves the animals that he created, he saves them. Noah and his family are told to gather these animals and put them on a boat. God's going to bring a flood and this family and all of these animals are going to reseed or respawn God's creation project. And I know this story sounds incredulous, right? And we don't have time today to talk about whether it really happened and uh, how it happened. And was there really a worldwide flood or was it maybe a more limited flood? We, we can't get into all that now. But don't miss the symbolic significance of this story. I mean, even if you question some of the details, God is saving humanity. And who else is he saving? He's saving the animals because life is still sacred. No matter how bad it's gotten, life is still sacred. And the way that God is saving them is through a family that is gathering animals on a boat and feeding them and loving them and caring for them and rescuing them. Not killing them. Not slaughtering them. Not eating them. Well, you guys know the rest of the story, right? The flood recedes, the boat comes to rest on land, and then God says they can come out of the ark. God promises to never destroy creation again. God commits to the bringing of new life, 
And then look at what happens. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So this is the same thing God said to Adam and Eve. He blesses them. He gives them the same language. God is reaffirming his commitment to creation. He's reaffirming humanity's role for creation. But then look at what God says. Chapter 9, verse 2. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the flat fish in the sea. Meaning, the reality of human sin has changed things. Animals are afraid of you now because you, meaning you collectively, humanity collectively, you have been ruling over them harshly. You kill them. You eat them. It wasn't always that way, but that's the reality now. Animals are afraid of you. God continues. And so they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And now, if you had any doubts before, it's super clear, right? At least in Genesis 1 and 2, it was not intended for us to eat animals in the beginning. It's very clear. I gave you the green plants then. That's how it was in the beginning. But now I'm giving you everything. But this is a result of the fall into sin, Because of the fall into sin, because of the way things have gone, God decides to make a concession here. Animals are afraid of you. You're eating them. So I'm going to make a concession. You can begin to eat the animals now in the same way I gave you the green plants. By the way, God makes concessions all the time. If God, he doesn't make concessions with everything, but there are instances in the Bible and especially in the Old Testament where he makes a concession because if he doesn't make a concession, the creation project won't move forward. And so God says, okay, I'll let you now eat animals. But verse four, this is, this is big, verse four, but you must not eat meat that has its life blood still in it. And the text goes on to say some other things, but essentially what it's saying is, this is serious. If you're going to eat animals, it is serious. Life and death are serious. When you take an animal's life and the blood flows out, it's serious. You need to take it seriously. You need to cook the meat properly. You need to thank God for this animal. You need to acknowledge the shortness of life. You need to acknowledge that all provision ultimately comes from God. And now you begin to see, when we get to Leviticus, why these sacrifices are so holy and serious and important and symbolic. If you're going to kill and eat animals, I'll make a concession there, God is saying, but here's how you have to do it. It needs to be part of a broader gift that you're giving to me or that you're needing cleansing for. And so you read Leviticus. And on first pass, it seems strange and barbaric, but you get into it and you begin to realize, wow, These people were way more in tune with creation. They were way more aware of God's intentions in creation. They took life and death way more seriously than we do. And they were more attempting to live in tune with God's movement, with his divine will, with the divine that is within all of us and within creation itself. And so all of that leads to my final reflection, reflection number three, and I'm about to wrap up. I know this is getting long. Reflection number three is this. We need to consider the moral and spiritual aspects of eating meat. Which means if you're a vegetarian, the four of you that are listening to this, right? You've chosen not to eat meat. I think it actually means you're a witness to God's creation intent. 
And maybe you didn't even know it, but you are. Maybe you don't eat meat just because you don't like it. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a hippie family, right? Where nobody ate meat and that's what your parents told you you shouldn't do. I don't know what it is for you, but there are some moral and spiritual aspects, some elements that we need to consider that are significant. And if you've chosen to listen to those impulses within you and not eat meat as a result, I think you are a witness in our world. Now, if you're not a vegetarian, for most of you listening, you don't have to become one. I'm not a vegetarian. Genesis chapter 9, God says, humans can eat meat. We just read it, right? People do it throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. It is not a sin to eat meat. So if you love the taste of steak like I do, if you love a good burger like I do, you don't have to apologize for that or feel judged in any sense because of what I'm saying or because of what the Bible says. But, but, this is important. For those of us who are not vegetarians, I think we need to ask some serious questions. We need to consider the moral and the spiritual aspects of what's happening when we do eat meat or of where that meat comes from or of how thoughtless and degrading the animal was likely bred and raised and slaughtered that we are eating. We need to consider the weight of what's happening when animals are killed so that we can put food on the table. Which maybe means we might decide that it would be meaningful and it would be spiritual to revise some of our buying habits or some of our eating habits. We we might decide to put more thought and intention into all of it. Not out of obligation, right? But because we want to live holistic lives where we don't just worship God or think about God for one hour on Sundays or for 10 minutes of prayer in the morning, but where all the details of our lives, how we work, how we rest, what we read, what we watch, what we play, and yes, what we eat, which think about it, it's so central to who we are, what we eat. I eat three big meals a day. I eat 10 snacks between the, like we eat all the time. And so Might we ask, how can all of these details be integrated into a life that is more in harmony with God? It's more in harmony with one another, and it's more in harmony with creation. And as much as we don't want to admit it, Leviticus actually might teach us something about that today, or at least raise questions for us. So, That's how important I think this topic is. I hope it's given you a lot to think about today. That's my goal. My goal is always to answer a few questions and create all kinds of new ones with these podcasts. So I hope you'll think about that and ask God, what should I do about this? In our next message, we will jump into Leviticus chapters 8 and 9, and I hope you'll join us for that. Thanks for listening today.